I like how Danny pointed out the eternalness of worship and how when we are taking part in that, we are getting in on eternity, something that lasts forever. But, you know, it's not just in the songs that we sing to the Lord, because what we are about to do right now is also a part of eternity. The Bible says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. And that when God's Word goes forth, that it does not return to Him void without accomplishing what He desires. And so when we are getting into God's Word and allowing His Word, our hearts being open like Danny talked about, to allowing the power of God's Word to do a work in us, we are getting in on something that is eternal, just like declaring the worship of God is too. Today we're going to be in the book of Hebrews again. So if you brought your Bibles with you, turn to chapter 7 there. Last week we looked at chapter 6 where we learned uh, some of the evidences of what a, a true Christian is. And I talked about how a lot of people, especially down here in the Bible Belt, seem to identify as Christian, but in reality they really aren't. And so we looked at ways to how to know if you are. And we also saw that if you truly are saved, then your salvation is guaranteed all the way to the end. A true Christian cannot lose their salvation. Verses 4 through 6 showed us that if someone appears to have left or turned away from the faith, then truth of the matter is they never really had it to begin with. I'm going to piggyback off of that message for today because there's a couple things in that from last week in chapter 6 that I felt just kind of left us hanging that needed to be explored further. Last week I mentioned that if a person is truly saved, then one of the evidences of that is, is the continual life change that takes place. And I said that the rate of change is going to differ in each individual. Some may change fast, some may change slow. The change may be pretty sudden and drastic and happen over a short period of time in some people, while in others the change may be uh, very small and incremental and take place over a longer period of time, which is why Paul would often remind his readers of the letters that he wrote that we need to walk in patience with one another. But no matter what that change looks like, the truth is that once a person is saved through faith in Jesus, God immediately begins the process of molding us more into the image of Christ. From the moment of salvation until either we die or Jesus comes back, whichever takes first, we are growing in spiritual maturity. It's what we often refer to as the process of sanctification. And so this brings up a question similar, similar to one that we asked last week. Last week it was, how do we know if we are truly saved? And the question this week is, how do we know if we are growing in maturity? What does a mature Christian really look like? And so that's what I'm going to attempt to answer today. The other place I felt that chapter 6 kind of left us hanging was at the very end of the chapter. It was talking about what Jesus has done for us. And 
The very last thing it says in the last verse is that Jesus has become a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And we read that. Some of you may have wondered, well, what in the world is that? And so we're going to look at what that means too because I think both of these things go together. The signs of spiritual maturity, uh, some of that is tied into what it means for Jesus to be of the order of Melchizedek. And the key to that is actually found in verses 23 through 25 of chapter 7, and that's going to serve as our main text. So let's all stand today and look at these verses together. Hebrews 7, starting in verse 23. It says, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let's pray. God, we do right now come before you after declaring who you are and your goodness and your glory and your greatness. Lord, we submit ourselves to your word. God, the power of it, the power to transform us, the power to... Uh, open our eyes to see you for who you are. And Lord, we just ask you to have your way in us like only your word can do. And so, Father, let your will be done in this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The more I studied this particular text right here all this week, the more excited I got about preaching this and the Lord just kept revealing one incredible truth after another and and some of the things in here are are part of the gospel that makes us go you know if this is true then this changes everything and that's what we're going to find in in some of this but once I put all this together of what the Lord was showing me I realized that if I was to preach all of this at once I would be cramming in a whole lot of information and just a short amount of time, and I really don't want to do that because when that happens, I believe it can be very hard for us to to digest and take away any of it. It's hard for us to retain it. I mean, it would be like me trying to give you a drink of water by turning on a fire hydrant. It's just too much of it coming at us all at once, and we're not able to take any. And so I decided to go for quality versus quantity and split this into two different messages. So instead of you getting one big, long sermon today, uh, some of you are like, yes. You get two shorter ones uh, split between the two Sundays. So you can thank me later for that. Now, I decided to do that after the bulletin was printed. So for those of you who like to follow along in your notes, just know that we're not going to get to everything that's in there this morning. We're really going to only get to the first one and then... Uh, we'll save the rest for next week. Okay, so last week I told you two things about the book of Hebrews. Number one is that nobody knows for sure who wrote this letter. I mean, most people seem to think in, that it was the Apostle Paul because a lot of the writing style that's found in here is very similar to his. But we don't know for sure because it is the only epistle in the New Testament that does not identify the author. And the other thing I said was that it was originally written to Jews in order to prove the superiority of the gospel 
um, over the law, Christianity versus Judaism. And that's exactly what the writer is trying to prove here by saying that Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was an Old Testament character who gets just a very brief mention in the scriptures. He was a mysterious character to the Jewish scholars for many years. Let's turn back all the way to the book of Genesis and see what it says about old Melchizedek. It's Genesis chapter 14. In Genesis 14, it's near the beginning of Abraham's story, which at this time he was only known as Abram. It was before God had changed his name to Abraham. And in chapter 14, Abram takes 300 men with him, and they go and defeat the armies of five heathen kings. They return with the spoils, and here's what the story says next, starting in verse 17. It says, Then after his return from the defeat of Mr. C... (laughs) Too long to try to say. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. And that's it for Melchizedek. That is all that is written about him in the Bible. All we know is that he was king of Salem, which at that time was another name for Jerusalem, and that he was a priest of God, which is very unusual because this was 500 years before the priesthood was established through Moses. It also says that Abram gave Melchizedek Melchizedek, a tenth of all the spoils, which is also unusual because this was long before the principle of tithing had been established. Like I said, Melchizedek had always been a very mysterious character. Uh, Nobody knew why he was just here and why he appeared so suddenly and there's not more said about him. I mean, what is the purpose? What is the significance about him? All that the scholars knew was that there had to be a purpose to him because God doesn't put anything in his word for no purpose at all. Everything is intentional with a purpose behind it, but nobody knew what that was with Melchizedek. He always remained a mystery until the writer of Hebrews came along to explain what his purpose was in chapter 7. So let's turn back there again. Hebrews chapter 7 Let's look at what it says, starting in verse 1. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham appointed a portion, the tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. So he's saying that Melchizedek was a foreshadow of Jesus. Just like I've often showed you, all throughout the Old Testament, God was dropping hints as to what the plan was, as to what he was going to do through Jesus. 
The name Melchizedek means righteousness. And so he was the king of righteousness and he was the king of peace, which is what Salem is translated to. And so these are also two names that Jesus is known by, the king of righteousness and the prince of peace. Now this is another unusual thing about Melchizedek because no other person in the Bible held those two positions at the same time. Someone, someone was either a king or they were a priest, but not both, except for Jesus. Melchizedek is what we call a type of Jesus, a character who represents him. Now, once the office of priest had been established 500 years later, every priest had to come from the line of Aaron, who was of the tribe of Levi. And so all the priests had to be Levites. And one of the arguments there had been against Jesus being considered our priest was that he was not from the tribe of Levi, he was from the tribe of Judah. Hebrews 7.15 actually makes mention of this. But the point that the writer is making that it, is that every priest from the tribe of Levi was a mortal man. They served as priests until they died, and then another one would take their place until they died. The point is that Jesus wasn't from any physical priestly order. He is from a spiritual one, which means that he is one who doesn't die. In verse 17, the writer quotes Psalm 110, which is a a complete prophecy about Jesus. And he quotes verse 4, which says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So here's the argument that the writer of Hebrews is making in regards to Christianity being greater than Judaism. In Judaism... The Levitical priest served as intercessors between the people and God. The people would come to the temple and present their sacrifice to the priest. The priest would then take that and present that to God and then declare that the people were in right standing with God. As long as the priest was alive, they were good because they had this intercessor intercessor to go between them and God to make sure they were in good standing. But if the priest died, then there'd be no one to do that for them until another one would have to go through the elaborate ceremony to become a priest and then take their place, and it would all happen all over again. And so because the priesthood was so unstable and so unpredictable because it relied on mortal men, the people's relationship and their standing with God was also unstable and unpredictable and unreliable. There wasn't just a whole lot of security as far as their relationship with God in that. So look again at the text we read to begin with, verse 23 through 25, in light of everything that I just said. It says, the former priest, talking about those Levitical priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Years ago, I had an, an accountant who lived in DeSoto, Texas, who did all of my taxes. His name was Weldon Dixon. And he was referred to me by a pastor friend of mine because 
Mr. Dixon was very good and knowledgeable of how taxes, all the tax rules worked with those who were in the clergy. He was actually the son of a pastor, and so he knew all the ins and outs and the rules that um, apply to clergy that can really get pretty complicated and confusing. And uh, so every year I would gather all my information, the receipts and W-2 forms and bank statements and all that, and I would send it to him. And then he would prepare my tax statement and send that to the government. And so Mr. Dixon was my intercessor, if you will, between me and the IRS. He made sure that I was in good standing with the government. And this went on for about five years or so until I got a call one day from his daughter that Mr. Dixon had suddenly died of a heart attack. Now, although I had never met him face to face, we talked on the phone quite often and had gotten to know one another pretty well. And so I was saddened by that news. But added to that sadness was a sudden sense of anxiety. Just a sense of kind of panic came over me because I was thinking, well, who is going to do my taxes now? Who was going to make sure that I remain in good standing with the IRS? It was this sick feeling because this news came just before tax season when I was in the process of getting all my information together and I knew that I did not have enough time to go find an accountant that I could trust who I knew knew all the ins and outs about the, the pastor rules. And so I had the great idea of doing it myself. <laughs> now fortunately... I had kept all the records and files that Mr. Dixon sent me every year. He would send me a copy of all the work that he did, and then I held on to all of that. And so I went back through all those files and tried to teach myself how to do it based on all the work that he did. And it took a lot of trial and error at first. I mean, I would copy down the way that I saw that he had done it, and so I'd send it into the IRS, and I'd wait for that uh, check to come back. And after a few weeks, I would get something. It said the IRS on it, and I'd get all excited just to find out that it was a statement saying that I had failed, that I did not prepare my statement correctly. And so they gave me all the information that they were missing that I needed to send back to them, and so I would get all that and send it back and then wait a few weeks, get another envelope, open it up, and say, you still failed. It's not good enough. And so this kept happening a few times, and they were like, if this happens again, if you don't get it right by this date, you're going to have to pay a penalty. But finally, I was able to get something together that was enough to satisfy them. But it was a very stressful situation, to say the least. I mean, I went from having to to depend on someone to keep me good with the government to then having to depend on myself, which wasn't a very comforting thought at all. Because back in college, I actually attempted to major in accounting, but it only lasted for about half a semester. Real quickly, I knew that I wasn't cut out for accounting. And so I was having to rely now on doing my own accounting. And so it wasn't a very comforting thought. And every year, I would just stay awake at night after sending in my taxes thinking, I just know I'm going to get audited this year. But by the grace of God, it hasn't happened yet. But the thing is that this is the way that people lived in their relationship with God, relying on the priests, the Levitical priests. And it's the way that many people still live today. They may know that they don't have to go to a priest, 
in order for them to be right with God, but they do think that it is all up to them in order to remain in God's good standing. And that is not a very secure place to be because I'm going to tell you right now, it is so hard to try really hard to be good when you really know that you are bad. Right? Say this, yes, it is. It's hard to try to be good when deep down you know that you're bad. Yes, it's okay to admit that. And so when you think that your salvation and the security of it hinges completely on you, I mean, you're like me. You're the failed accounting major trying to do your own taxes. You're the failure at life and at being good, trying to make sure that your standing with God is secure based on how good you are. You see how foolish that is? Verse 25, though, says he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. The point Hebrews is making is that your standing before God does not depend on anyone but Jesus. You are not responsible for ensuring the security of your own salvation. Jesus is. And he's talking about Christians here. And he doesn't say that he saves you once and then... It's up to you from now on to ensure that you keep your salvation. It says he saves you forever, meaning he ensures the security of your salvation, of your relationship with him for eternity. And he is the only one who can do that because he is the priest who lives forever and will never die. And it says since he always lives to make intercession for them. Think about that. He always lives to make intercession for you. What that means is that he is the eternal priest who goes before the Father on your behalf and ensures that you are in good standing. No matter if you fall flat on your face or if you're on the top of the highest mountain, Jesus lives forever making intercession going before the Father, saying, that one right there, he's mine. She's mine. It's not based on what they're doing. It's based on what I've done. The holes in my hands, in my side, in my feet. They're not good because of their behavior. They're good because of my blood that has been proclaimed over their life through their faith in me. He lives forever to make intercession for you. Man, is that good news or what? And it's this eternalness of Jesus that ties a lot of into a lot of ways of what it means to be a mature Christian, which we're going to really look at for the next two weeks. You know, many people seem to think that defining spiritual maturity is an easy thing. They believe that they're really these clear-cut, black-and-white definitions of what that looks like. But I contend that it's not that easy. In fact, it can be pretty muddy and confusing, which is why so few of us seem to be heading in that direction. We're going to look at today and next week some of the most common assumptions that are made about what it means to be a mature Christian, especially, again, here in the Bible Belt, We're going to look at one of them today, and then we'll save the rest of them for next week. So here's the first common assumption, and that is a mature Christian 
is someone who really knows the Bible. And here's why I say it can be muddy and confusing. Because that statement is absolutely true. And it is absolutely not true. If you understand what the Bible is, that can be true. If you don't, it won't be true. If you understand that the scriptures are all about and point to someone other than you, then that can be true. But if you see the scriptures as terminating solely on themselves and the majority of it being about you, then it won't be true. And all your memorization has been an exercise in pure vanity. Let me explain what I'm talking about. In John 5, 39 through 40, Jesus says to the Pharisees, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. The Pharisees viewed the Scriptures the way that many people still view the Bible today. Same way that you've heard the Bible called so many times, an owner's manual for life. And they thought, all I have to do is follow this command, obey this rule, do these instructions, and I'm good with God. And they spent lots of time knowing and memorizing all of it, thinking that by doing so, they would be closer to God than anyone else. And because they did know the Scriptures a whole lot more than anyone else, everyone assumed that they were more spiritually mature than everyone else. But Jesus here is telling them, no, you're not, because you are missing the whole point of the Scriptures. The whole point is me. That's what Jesus was telling them. I mean, all of us, I'm sure, know someone who knows the Bible inside and out, but we would not trust for one minute with our children. There are people that we know that are very knowledgeable of the Bible and can quote lots of verses. But the way that they live looks nothing like that. I mean, what good is it to be able to quote hundreds of scriptures if none of them are applied to your life? The point for today in your notes there is this. Spiritual maturity isn't gained by obeying the commands of the Bible. It's not gained by obeying the commands of the Bible. It's gained by knowing Jesus. We read the Bible to find and know him more. That's what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees there in John 5. I mean, just take the case of Melchizedek. Why was he such a mystery to everyone for so long? Because people weren't seeing the scriptures for what they were. I mean, if all you do is view the Bible as this big instruction manual for life, then what in the world are you going to do when you get to Melchizedek in Genesis 14? What are you going to do with that? How is that an owner's manual kind of thing there with Melchizedek? He's going to remain a mystery to you just like he has been to the Jewish scholars. But if you read the Bible looking for Jesus, 
you'll be able to see everything like Melchizedek in the Scriptures for what it is. And when you do that, you're probably going to learn something about Jesus that you didn't know before, and your love for Him is just going to grow more and more. Every Scripture makes more sense when viewed from a gospel perspective. If you think that the whole point of the Bible is to just know the Bible, then you're practicing futility. But if you understand that all of the Bible is about Jesus and the whole point of it is to know Him, then you're on your way to spiritual maturity. If your view of the Bible is all about rules and instructions and guidelines and principles to follow, your spiritual maturity is not going to grow very fast at all. Because life is not found in following the commands of the Bible. Now that may sound shocking to some of you. Because I know how a lot of us was raised in church with it pounding in our heads. Obey the commands, obey the commands, obey the commands, obey the commands. Or else. But think about this. Can someone who doesn't know Jesus obey the commands? Yeah. They can. Someone that is lost as a goose when it comes to salvation. They can read the Ten Commandments and decide that they're not going to kill or steal or cheat or whatever. They can even read some of the instructions in the New Testament and decide, you know what, when somebody hits me next time, I'm just going to turn the other cheek. They can decide that, you know what, that whole being nice to your enemies thing, that may work. Or decide to take care of the poor and the widows. And if they do that, they're going to experience the benefits of doing those kinds of things. But will doing that get them any closer to heaven? No. Not at all. That's why I say life isn't found in obeying the commands. It's found solely in Jesus. We read the Bible to get to know Him. Am I saying that obeying the commands aren't important? Not at all. What I'm saying is that we shouldn't get the cart before the horse. The goal isn't following the commands. The goal is Jesus. And he said, if you love me, what? You will obey my commands. Obedience is the natural result of life that we find in Jesus. Obedience is the result of And so a mature Christian is someone who understands what the Bible is about. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. We are not the center of every story. Jesus is. And so we read it to get to know him. I'm going to leave it with that today. Next week we're going to look at a few more assumptions about what it means to be a mature Christian. I'm going to tell you right now, I hadn't even gotten to any of the good stuff yet. when it comes to what this text really means for us. But like I said, I don't want to give you so much information that you can't retain any of it. But what you need to take with you today, just two things. Y'all can do that, right? Two things, good. First of all, take with you the confidence and security that your salvation is secure because Jesus always lives to make intercession for you. Why is it important to know that? 
talked about before how when I played football in high school, I really didn't play as good as I could have because I played not to mess up. You know, there's a difference in just playing for fun and playing not to mess up. And when you just play to not mess up, you don't do very good. I was afraid of that eye in the sky, the camera, because I knew it was going to grade every aspect of my game. And so I always played to not mess up, which really held me back a lot. A lot of people are living their Christian life to not mess up walking on eggshells with God, thinking that as soon as they do, that's it. Just like I used to think, well, I just know this is a year I'm going to get audited. You're thinking, I just know God's going to hammer me somehow for this. But knowing how secure your salvation actually is should cause you to just live life with total abandon. Not afraid that you're going to mess up because God's got you in the palm of your hand. That you don't have to live in fear of anything. That you can do great things for the kingdom of God. Knowing that you're not going to mess it up. Because His grace isn't going to let you. And then the second thing is to just realize that the whole point of knowing the Bible is to know Jesus. And I promise you, if you start reading the Bible looking for Him, it's going to all of a sudden come alive in ways that it never has before. What used to be so boring and dry to me is now so fun and exciting. It'll be a whole lot more fun than you ever thought it could be. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that the news just keeps getting better and better. Lord, the more that we discover who you are and what it is that you have done. Lord, the more blown away I am. And God, to think that my life is secure in you is such a freeing thought that takes such a weight off because I know how easy it would be for me to lose it just like that because I do fail and I do fall. Lord, I pray for those in here who have been living their whole life like they're walking on eggshells around you, fearing that as soon as they mess up, you're going to come down on them in anger and punishment. Lord, I pray that you open their eyes to see that you paid too high of a price for them to have to live that way. That there's more to the life that you have provided through the blood of your Son. Lord, I also pray this morning that you would instill in us a hunger for your word like we have never had before. And that that hunger for your word comes from a driving hunger of more of Jesus. Lord, it seems like in our society today, we have just cast your word aside. We're living based more on emotions and our own plans and our own opinions than we are living on truth. God, I pray that we would bring your word back to the center and realize that it's all about you. Holy Spirit, would you come and just have your way the remainder of this time. Do that work in our hearts that I prayed for at the beginning of this. And let your will be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.